0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, in the second chapter and the ninth verse, the ninth verse in the second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. Those who are in the habit of attending here regularly, Sunday by Sunday, will realize that we are returning once more, and for the sixth time, to a consideration of the message of this uh, second chapter in this book of the prophet Jeremiah. We are doing so, as I'm explaining, because here is one of these clear, explicit statements of the message of the whole Bible to the sinful human race. The message, of course, particularly here, was addressed to the children of Israel. But they, after all, are just a sample. They're just a pattern. What God said to them, God says, in general, I say, to the whole human race. He chose this nation to speak through them and to give his message. Now here they were uh, in great trouble, in great difficulties. Everything had gone wrong. Their country was uh, in a condition of turmoil and of unhappiness. And uh, they know not what to do nor where to turn. There were false prophets amongst them who were assuring them that everything was all right, that this was just a little temporary matter, some trifling matter about which they need not be profoundly concerned. But God raised this man, Jeremiah, and he sent him with his message. And here we have his first address, his first sermon, if you like, delivered to the children of Israel in that kind of situation and of predicament. And we have seen that uh, really there is only one basic message. It is this that all these troubles have come upon them because in their folly they have forgotten the Lord their God. That's the entire cause of the trouble. Everything comes out of that. If only they had continued to be His people, they would not be suffering, they'd be enjoying prosperity, they'd be enjoying happiness. It is precisely because of their own folly, their own rebellion, that they are as they are. But God is not content to leave it like that. He has broken it up, as we've seen Sunday after Sunday. He's put it in particular to them. They've turned their backs upon him without any reason at all for doing so. That was verse 5. They've forgotten all about his great act of salvation as he delivered them from the bondage and the captivity of Egypt. As if it had never happened at all. They are living as if it had never taken place. They have no sense of gratitude. No sense of wonder and of amazement. They don't even understand it sufficiently to see. That as they are in a similar kind of trouble again. The obvious thing to do is to turn to God. They don't say it. it means nothing to them. Likewise they despised his present land. As we saw in verse 7. He brought them into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But, he says, the goodness, when he entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. And as we were seeing last Sunday night, in many ways the most terrible aspect of the whole condition was this, that the people who ought to know better, the leaders, were as guilty as the people. The priests said that. Where is the Lord? And they that handle the law, you may not. The pastors, the princes, also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by bell, and walked after things that do not profit. Well, there it is. Here is this terrible condition. But now God goes on to say this. Wherefore? because of all this, in the light of all this. I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. Now, that's where we resume this evening. But the connection, of course, as you see, is of vital importance, because this word, wherefore, sends us back to what has gone before. And it is in the light of all that, and particularly, perhaps, because of this Terrible, criminal failure of the preachers, the prophets, the priests, the princes. That God says in the light of this and because of this. I will yet plead with you. And with your children's children will I plead. Now I'm calling attention to all this as I say because it seems to me to be precisely what God is saying this evening. To this country and to this world and to us one by one. Look at the misery, look at the unhappiness. Look at the state of this nation and of all the nations. Look at the turmoil in the world, the sadness, the unhappiness, the fear, the alarm. Look at the breakdown in personal life and in so many other sacred relationships. Look at it all. What's it due to? Oh, the statesmen and others are speaking, the priests and prophets are still speaking, but as we saw last Sunday night, isn't it a terrible repetition of that which happened even in the days of Jeremiah, utter confusion. The very prophets prophesying after Baal, philosophy instead of revelation, men's ideas and thoughts instead of the plain teaching of the law and of the book of God. The position, you see, is still quite identical. And therefore we go on, and what we've got here in this ninth verse is also applicable to us. And God is saying this this very evening, Wherefore I will yet plead with you, and with your children's children will I plead. Now what does this mean? The first thing we have to do is to be clear as to to the meaning of this word, plead, because it's a word that can be very easily misunderstood in this particular context. We rather tend to assume that the word plead here means appeal. When we say we're going to plead with somebody to do something, we mean we're going to make a great appeal to them. We're going to bring out all our reserves. We're going to make a most tender appeal. Uh, we th- we think that the word plead means that. But actually here that isn't its meaning primarily. I'm prepared to admit that that meaning comes in as I hope to show you. But it isn't the main thrust of the meaning of this word. Well, what is its meaning? Well, the word plead here must be considered more in legal terms. Now, it's a term that's very common in legal circles, isn't it? Uh, imagine two men who've got a controversy with one another. And they propose to take this matter to law. One man's going to bring an action against another. What does he do? Well, he consults his solicitor. And what does he have to do? Well, what he has to do is to draw up the pleadings so that this man may be enabled to state his case. And what happens is that the pleadings of this man are sent to the solicitor or the representatives of the men against whom the action is being brought. And he gives his answer to the pleading. Now, that's the kind of connotation of this word pleading that we're looking at this evening. God says, now because of this, I've got a controversy with you. And I'm going to state my case. I'm going to argue this matter out with you. That's the meaning of the pleading here. You see, there is no real connection otherwise. The wherefore becomes more or less meaningless. Having brought this terrible denunciation of the priests and the princes and the prophets, he says, wherefore, I will plead with you. Oh no, he is going to take up a case. He is going to uh, conduct a controversy. He is going to indicate exactly to them what they are doing and what he thinks about it. Now, uh, this is uh, a very common use of this word, plead, of course, in the scripture. Let me give you one other example which is exactly parallel with this. In the book of the prophet Micah, in chapter 6 and in verse 2, you read this. "Hear ye, O mountains... The Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. It's a pleading in the sense sense of a disputation, of an argument, of a case presented and argued out thoroughly. Very well. That is then what God is saying at this point to the nation through this prophet Jeremiah. I want to put my pleadings before you, says God. Now, how does he do that? Well, God does that in two main ways. One is, of course, the way that he adopts here. He does it in words. He reasons it out. Exactly, I say, as that man goes, that client goes to his solicitor, and the solicitor draws up his pleadings, and he puts them on paper. He writes them or he types them. There are the pleadings on paper. God uses that method. And of course, that's what you've got very largely in in the books of these Old Testament prophets. God stating his case. God presenting the pleadings. God saying, this and this and that. That's my reason. That's one method. But you know, it isn't the only way in which God pleads. Sometimes God pleads with people by doing things to them, by actions. By interfering in their life, in the course of their life and living. This is something again that you read constantly in the pages of the scripture. God, as it were, says, well now I've sent my prophets to you. But you don't listen to them. Very well, I'm going to visit you. Something happens to them. Some calamity takes place. A pestilence, an earthquake, a war, an enemy arises. And the people are in trouble. That's God speaking and that's God pleading. The same objective, exactly. He wants these people to see the conditions, see what's happening, see what's going to happen. They won't listen to words very well. He acts, he begins to plead with them by doing things to them and by interfering in their uh, in their life in its ordinary tenor and cost. Now, here this evening, I want particularly to deal with the first method. The argument as presented in words. The pleadings, as it were, uh, put forward by God himself in the advocacy of his own case. And it seems to me that our matter divides itself up, therefore, quite naturally, in the following ways. Let us, uh, for a moment, look at the contents of the pleadings. I'm going to go on with my pleading, says God, in the light of what I've been saying about you. Now then, what does he say? What do you find in the pleadings as you read them? And the first thing that we find is this. The utter unreasonableness of sin. What do I mean by that? Well, it's this little word yet that tells me that. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you. He means this, you see. I've already been doing it, but I'm going to go on doing it. And of course, we have seen already that he has been doing so, but he hasn't finished. He's multiplied his arguments, he's brought out reason after reason, but he says, you know, I haven't finished even yet, I've got more, then he begins to say this and he says that, you read your chapter and you'll find how he brings out his further arguments. And from that I deduce this principle, that sin is utterly unreasonable. There's nothing to be said for it. The arguments against the sinful life are literally endless. And here we've got in this chapter but a selection of the possible things that can be said. It doesn't matter which angle you look at sin and the sinner, the sinful life. It doesn't matter from what standpoint do you face it. There's nothing to be said for it. If you take it in terms of pure reason... If you analyze it in terms of what a man is doing, take, for instance, the argument we've already seen in verse 5. God turned to the people and said, Tell me, what iniquity have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me? What reason is there for the sinful life? I ask again, what reason is there really for not believing in God tonight? What is there as an objection against the Ten Commandments? What's the objection to the Sermon on the Mount? And the answer is, of course, there is no objection. Nobody can defend sin in intellectual terms. There's nothing to be said for it at all. The thing is essentially wrong. Here is the real life, and there's no argument against living it. And then, but look, look actually at what men are doing. Take it that way. He says they've followed, walked after vanity and become vain. You can't defend that. I mean, let's uh, let's get a man, let's call a witness and... uh, let him to put up put up tonight the case for drunkenness. Let a man put up the case for drunkenness. Spending his money in large amounts in order to knock out his higher centers and his real control of himself, to make a beast of himself, to cause his wife and children unhappiness. And as I say, to look even, almost like a beast, if, beast if not worse. What's the defense? What's the argument? There isn't an argument. There's nothing to be said for it intellectually. But you you don't only look at it intellectually. Look at it from any standpoint. Look at it from the standpoint of productivity. What legacy do sinful men leave to their posterity? What good do they do to the world? Look at the way people are spending today without going any further. The average person. Uh, What's the value of it? What's the point of it? Uh, Where's the uplift in it without going any further? Does it really help them to face life as it is today and to understand it? Does it help them really to live in the manner worthy of the name of men? Does it help them to die? Does it hold out any hope for them beyond death and the grave? The answer is no. There's nothing to be said for So, you see, that's what the prophet is saying by this little word, yet. He says, I've shown you this, that, and that about it, but I haven't finished. I've got further things to show. And he'll go on to show the perverse character of sin. The unutterable folly of sin, and then its futility, and so on. Now then, I'm summing it all up by saying that we see here the utter unreasonableness of sin. Can anything be said for it? Now, that's the kind of argument that God is putting down, first of all, in in his pleadings. He said, look at the number of arguments that I'm bringing against you. Look at the things that I'm able to say so easily, so obviously. Why don't you see it? Very well, there's the first thing that I find under this heading of the contents of the pleadings. But let me come to a second. He also puts down in the pleadings the deep-seated and stubborn character of sin. Have you ever considered that, my friend? The deep-seated and the stubborn Stubborn character of sin. Where do you find that, says someone? Well, let me tell you where I find it. Here he says, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children, and with your children's children. He has already said in verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me? There it is, you see. This is what God is saying. He says, you know... I said in the past, the very things I'm saying to you, to your fathers. I'm now saying them to you. I'll go on saying them to your children. I'll go on saying them to your children's children. In other words, it comes to this, doesn't it? That there's really only one message in the Bible. Here is a history that at Inherit, by now looking backwards, covers... At a minimum, 6,000 years. And uh, what has been said to the human race during this 6,000 years? The answer is the very self-same thing that needs to be said to it tonight. You see, there's nothing new about sin. It's a very old trouble. It's a continuing trouble. Here it is, from generation to generation. Still the same old thing. Isn't it clear from the history of the Bible and from the general secular history of the human race that in the words of uh, the German philosopher Hegel, whom I'm very fond of quoting in this connection, Hegel put it all in a nutshell. History teaches us that history teaches us nothing. That's a very profound remark. History teaches us that history teaches us nothing. What's he mean? Well, he means this. That experience of the past doesn't put us wise to the conditions. I pleaded with your fathers. Very well, you can look back and read the record of the fathers. They were reminded of it constantly by these prophets. Have you noticed how the prophets had a habit of recapitulating the whole history of the children of Israel? Almost every one of them does it. What for? Well, in order to show this very fine. It's the same old story. Your fathers were guilty of this. You were guilty of it. Your children will be your children's children. Experience doesn't seem to teach the human race, does it? Of course, we're always imagining that we're going to learn a lesson once and for all. We remember many of us, the statesmen of the First World War. They used to wax very eloquent on this theme. They said, you know, this is the war to end war. At last. But you see, we've had a worse war since. They're preparing for another. No, no, mankind doesn't learn. It doesn't matter what's been said to the fathers, it's going to be said again to us and it'll have to be said to our children after us. Why? Well, because we go on repeating the same errors. The same things are being done from age to age and from generation to generation. Now, this isn't only true of mankind at large, it's true of us one by one. Do we learn by experience? Here's a man committing a sin last night. And he's been very miserable and unhappy today. He says, I'll never do that again. Do you believe him? Is the experience of today really going to lead to that result that he'll never commit that sin again? We know perfectly well that it doesn't. We go on and on. Though we suffer and say, I'll never do it again, we do it again. Though we know what it's going to lead to, Though we know we'll be ashamed of ourselves, though we'll be miserable and wretched, back again we go and do it. It's true of us individually. Our own experience doesn't help us. It doesn't seem to deliver us. You see, the mere knowledge of consequences is not enough. That's the greatest fallacy probably of this 20th century, which has believed so much that if only you tell people of the evil consequences of drink, sex abuse and war, That they'll all at once stop. But they don't stop. They never have stopped. God had told the fathers of these people, quite plainly, they hadn't listened, they'd reap the consequences, but here are their children doing exactly the same thing. Ah, yes, says God, and you, our children are going to do it, and their children are going, I'm going on with my pleadings. Now then, what is the lesson here? What is the message? Oh, it's just this. It is what I've called the deep-seated... The stubborn character of sin. Oh, my dear friends, this is the lesson we need to learn. That this thing that is damning the individual life and the life of the whole world and all its nations tonight is something that is so much a part of the warp and woof of our sinful, fallen human nature that your education can't touch it. Knowledge makes no difference to it. It's quite impervious to all the arguments of reason. All the lessons of history leave it quite untouched. Why? Oh, I say, because it's something that's at the very center of the personality. It is down in the very depths of the being. Where is the trouble? Well, says the Bible, it's in the heart. Out of the heart of men come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, and such like. It's there, you see, it isn't on the surface. The problem of mankind and of human nature is not on the surface. It's right down in the very center of the personality. It's in the heart. And lessons from history, and repetitions of lessons, and argument, no avail. Why? Well, you see, the trouble with men is so profound and so deep as this, that nothing will suffice him but a change of heart. He needs a new heart. He needs a clean heart. Oh, David had seen it, hadn't he? Create within me a clean heart, oh God, he says. He doesn't merely ask for another chance and new beginning. He says, I want a clean heart. Wash it with hyssop. Make me clean. Create within me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's an old problem, yes, and it's a very deep and profound and stubborn problem. It's gone on through the running centuries. There's nothing new about 1960 and the 20th century. Men and women are tonight committing the same old sins, repeating the same old follies. The world is as mad as it's always been. It's no better. It's a repetition. Fathers, yourselves, children, children's children. Oh, the depth of sin, of evil, and of iniquity. Well, there is what I find as the main contents of the pleadings. I leave it at that this evening. Because, God willing, I hope to take up the various other details of the pleadings as we find them in the chapter. I'm simply picking out these two big principles tonight. Oh, how unreasonable sin is. And yet I know it isn't enough for me to say that. I may convince a man intellectually here, but that will not save him. There are men who have all the knowledge that is necessary about sin. There are medical men who know all about the evil consequences of alcohol, but are hopeless drunkards. Man has always known consequences. That doesn't restrain him. That doesn't stop him. War is unutterable madness. But the knowledge of that isn't going to put an end to war. That's the fallacy of your infidel skeptics like H.G. Wells and the models. No, no, it's too deep. Nothing but a change of heart, a new heart. A new life can solve this terrible, deep problem of man form and in sin. But come, let us turn to a second matter. Let me look with you for a moment at a second great principle that is taught here. What is that? Well, it's this. It is the character of God as it is revealed in the pleading. You know, there's something tremendous about this verse. Have you got it? Wherefore, I will plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children, and your children's children. I will plead with you. Have you ever realized it, what he tells us? Do you see here the condescension of God? This is the Lord God Almighty speaking, the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. The Lord God who said, let there be light and there was light, For made men to the dust of the earth. The God who created the angels and all the hosts of heaven and your constellations and stars. God, the everlasting God. Here he is looking at sinful, fallen, rebellious, foolish men and saying, I will plead with you. I'm going to reason with you. I'm going to argue with you. Of course, he keeps on saying this, doesn't he? Listen to him at the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And you realize what it means, my friend? Here is a God who doesn't need you, who lived without us, existed from eternity, self-subsistent. The everlasting holy God who has no need of man, nor the world, nor anything. As he made us in a flash, he could end us in a flash. He could put an end to the whole sorry, miserable business of the history of the human race. He could wipe the earth out of existence. He doesn't need it. He doesn't depend upon it. It gives him no advantage. There he is everlasting and infinite in power and glory and majesty and might and holiness. And yet, and this is the thing that ought to break our stubborn hearts and cause us to melt, not only in penitence and contrition, but with amazement and love. He being who and what he is, And you and I being what and who we are. He comes to us and says, I will plead with you. I'm not going to bombard you, says God. I'm not going to exercise mine almighty prerogatives. I have a right to. I could do so. I'm not going to do so. I'm going to come down. I'm going to stoop to your level. I'm going to speak to you in terms that you can understand. I'm not going to give you displays of my glory and my majesty. I'm going to come down and talk to you. I'm going to put up the arguments. I'm going to ask you what have you got to say. I'm prepared to enter into a controversy with you. I'm not going to bombard you, says God. I'm not going to exercise mine almighty prerogatives. I have a right to. I could do so. I'm not going to do so. I'm going to come down. I'm going to stoop to your level. I'm going to speak to you in terms that you can understand. I'm not going to give you displays of my glory and my majesty. I'm going to come down and talk to you. I'm going to put up the arguments. I'm going to ask you what have you got to say. I'm prepared to enter into a controversy with you. Do you know, my friends, if the realization of that ought to be enough to save every one of us? The infinite condescension of the almighty God. Oh, Almighty as he is stoops to our weakness and comes down and, as it were, is prepared to let us speak and to say what we've got to say. He's going to enter into controversy. Oh, the condescension of the Almighty God. But then look at it in terms of his compassion. It's the same thing, you see. The fact I say that he's prepared to do that, what makes him do it? Why does he trouble with us at all? Why doesn't God destroy the universe and get rid of sinful men? Oh, I'm entitled to ask the question. You read your hundred and fourth Psalm and you'll find that the Psalmist really does that at the end of his psalm. He gives us that wonderful description of God in his glorious creation. He tells us about the animals and the mountains and the little rivulets and the streams and how everything is working so harmoniously according to the law of God. Then he looks at sinful men and he can't bear the sight. He says, this is a travesty. This is a monstrosity. Let the sinners, he says, let the sinners disappear. Let them get out of sight. Let them be banished out of the universe. Don't you understand the feelings of the psalmist? God made man in his own image, gave him that greatest of all privileges to be like God in certain respects. That's true of nobody else. Put him into paradise, everything perfect. Nothing required, it was every everything was there, and yet man in his utter folly, in his pride rose up against him and defied him and thus brought upon himself calamity, and has gone on doing it. And has complained to God and is ever ready to blame God for his own misdeeds. And in spite of it all, God still troubles with us. And is prepared even to plead with us. What is it, I say? It's his compassion. As I live, said the Lord God, through Ezekiel the prophet. As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Yes, says Peter, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the God whom men and women are scoffing at, and uh, from whom they're turning their backs in their cleverness and in their pride. This is the God they won't turn back to in their calamity at this present hour, and that's his character. Infinite in mercy and in compassion. A loving God and a gracious God. I take no delight in the death of the wicked, says God. I don't will that any should perish. Oh, the compassion of God. And it is because of that I say that he comes down and condescends to plead with us. Yes, but look at another aspect of his glorious character. You see, the attributes of God are in this one little verse. Look at them, my dear friend. Look at his long-suffering. He's pleaded with the fathers. He's pleading now with these. He's going on to plead with their children and with their children's children. And that's the record of the Old Testament. Look at this mighty succession of prophets he raised. Indeed, God himself reminded this recalcitrant people of that on one occasion. He says, look, I've risen up early. He uses that glorious anthropomorphism. He says, rising up early. I have sent them. One after another. They'd already rebelled. They'd already sinned. But you see, he goes on sending them prophets. But they reject them one after another. Our Lord put this in one of his last parables. You remember, to those wicked husbandmen. He picture-pictures God there as the owner of that vineyard. He sends a servant, they kill him. He sends another, they kill him. Sends another, and on and on and on. And you know, we are here tonight because of this. The world is still in existence because of this. Not willing that any should perish. Oh, the long-suffering of the Almighty God. He keeps on pleading with us in spite of our deafness, in spite of our rebelliousness, in spite of our refusal to hearken unto him. He not only does it with the whole world and with nations, he does it with us one by one. Is there anything that so breaks the heart of the true Christian believer as to look back across his life and see how for years he spurned the voice divine? I was not ever thus, nor prayed that thou... Should lead me on. I love to choose my path. Fool that I was. And you know I believe that through the countless ages of eternity. This will be a part of our theme and of our anthem. The long suffering of God. He chased me down the nights. And down the days. And down the labyrinth and ways of mine own mind. He followed me year uh, by year. Uh, in spite of my headstrong folly, he didn't give me up. Oh, love, that wilt not let me go. That wilt not let me go. I give my weary soul to thee. The long-suffering of God. Your fathers, you, your children, your children, still, I'm going on. Oh, that God would open our eyes to see something of the glorious attributes of his eternal being as they're displayed here. But you know, I haven't finished. There's one other that I find here. And that is the righteousness and the justice of God. What do you mean, says someone? Well, listen to it again. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, And with your children, and your children's children, will I plead? I'm going on with it. Yes, but not forever and forever. God is long-suffering. But man in sin, you see, misunderstands that. He says it's all right. He'll go on forever. He'll never do anything else. That's the tragedy, isn't it? That's the thing that Peter exposes in that third chapter of his second epistle that I read to you at the beginning. Men in the light of this say, where is the promise of his coming? It's all right, they say. You tell us about the wrath of God and the justice and the righteousness of God. But you know, I don't see anything happening. The world's still going on as it was. They said that in the time of Noah, didn't they? Noah preached 120 years. Took no notice. What are you talking about, they said? You know, you frightened us the first day. Indeed, you frightened us the first week. Well, let's admit, said some of them, we were frightened even for a year. We thought a great deluge was about to take place. But no, they said, what are you talking about? It's a hundred years since you began saying this sort of thing. Where is the promise of his coming? For from the beginning, everything stands out as it has done. What are you talking about? Oh, says Peter, that's the tragic mistake that you're making. You don't understand the long-suffering of God. You don't see that it leads to something else. You're abusing it. And that is the essence of your error. They did it at the flood, I say. But you see, what they don't understand is this, a principle that you find again elsewhere in the book of Genesis. God says, I'm going to let certain things go on until the iniquity of the Amorites is full. And then he struck. That was, of course, the complete failure of the children of Israel. God raises up this succession of prophets, sends them one after another, but then nothing happened. Ah, oh, we can listen to this all right. We've become quite deaf to all this. It has no effect upon us because it's all threatening. Nothing comes. And they really believed that nothing would come. They went on living as they had been living, but you know, a day came when everything that the prophets had foretold came to pass. The Chaldean army did actually arrive. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed and sacked. The children of Israel were carried away into the captivity of Babylon. God had been patient. I plead, I will plead with you, your children, your children's children. They said, it's going on forever. No, no. An end came. The long-suffering of God is amazing, but it's not to be traded upon. God's justice and righteousness are absolute over all. This has always been the trouble. You remember our blessed Lord himself teaches this at the end of that extraordinary 23rd chapter of the gospel according to St. Matthew. Let me read it to you. Wherefore behold I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes and some of them ye shall kill and crucify and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city that in order that upon you may come All the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. What he means, you see, is this. God doesn't strike at once. God gives warnings. And he goes on giving them, but not forever. A time comes when suddenly all that has been prophesied comes to pass. Upon this generation shall come the blood even from the time of Abel and from the centuries before when Zacharias, the son of Barachias, was slain unjustly between the temple and the altar. And do you remember what our Lord said there was fulfilled in A.D. 70? when the children of Israel were again routed and their cities sacked and destroyed, the temple raised to the ground, and this nation thrown out amongst the nations where they've been until this night. Oh yes, it came to pass. And so Peter says, don't misunderstand God's long-suffering. Remember that with him a thousand years are but as one day, and one day as a thousand years. The Lord is not slack, as some men count slackness. He's very long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but... The day of the Lord will come. It will come. As a thief in the night. Oh, the holy, righteous, just character of God is eternal and must be vindicated and shall be vindicated. Very well, there, we've looked at the character of God as it is revealed in this ninth verse of the second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Shall I ask you to consider with me my third and last point very, very briefly? Here it is. Why does God thus plead? I've told you something about the contents of his pleadings. I've told you that he does so because of his great and glorious character. Let me ask again, why does God thus in his infinite kindness and compassion and condescension Take the trouble to plead with us. And the answers are very simple. The first object is to open our eyes to the truth about ourselves. That's what he was doing. What iniquity have your fathers found in me? What's the matter? What was the matter with them? What's the matter with you? Do you know God raised up all these prophets and sent them that these people might be awakened, that their eyes might be opened, that they might see exactly what they were doing and the terrible danger in which they were. That was his object, to open their eyes. That's the whole object of preaching. Saul of Tarsus apprehended on the road to Damascus is given a commission. What is it, he says? I'm going to send you to the nations and to the people. What for? To open their eyes. To give them light. To enlighten them, to open their eyes, and to bring them from darkness to light, etc. That's the business of the gospel and of all preaching. That we may see the truth concerning ourselves. God pleads with us in order that we might see it. And he does that, of course, secondly because he would bring us to repentance. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to Repentance. Oh, God, takes this trouble, my dear friend, that you and I may see what is the truth, and then, having seen it, go to him and say, Oh, God, can you possibly forgive me? Such a fool, such a worm, such arrogance, such vileness, such lunacy. Canst thou forgive? The man turns to him and acknowledges his sin. You know, God's done this right through the centuries. There are some notable examples of this in the Bible. Do you remember David committing that terrible sin? Because of his lust, you see. He murdered a man. That he might have his wife as his wife. Terrible. And he was very pleased with himself. But God sent the prophet to open his eyes and to enlighten him. Nathan the prophet. Thou art the man! What for? Well, that David might come to the condition that he describes himself in Psalm 51. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, the goodness of God, says Paul to the Romans, leadeth thee, is leading thee to repentance. That's the meaning of his long-suffering and his compassion and all the delay of the execution of the final sentence. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. He wants you to see it and to acknowledge it and to get down before him and to prostrate yourself before him and to cry out for mercy and for compassion. That's why he pleads. But you know he's got another reason. And I'm free to confess that this is to me one of the most amazing things in the whole of the Bible. God pleads with us in this way in order to justify himself to us and to the whole world. When at the end he comes to execute the sentence and to mete out the punishment, that sin in all unrepentant persons so richly deserve. God pleads in order that he may justify himself and his own action. Now let me take you to David again, Psalm 51. It's a wonderful commentary on this verse of ours tonight. I am confessing my sin, says David, against thee, against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Why? Why does he say that? Well, David tells you, that thou mightest be just, when thou speakest, I'm admitting it all, says David, so that when you come to tell me about the punishment, you're going to mete out upon my dastardly sin. You will be absolutely right in everything you say, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest. You know, says David, there's nothing to be said against what you are going to say. I admit it all. I want to justify you. If you ruin me and destroy me and cast me into hell, I want to say, says David, you'd be fully justified in doing it. That thou might best be justified when thou speakest. That's why God pleads. Have we got it, my friends? There's nothing to be said for us. There's nothing to be said for mankind. There's nothing to be said for the human race in sin. It's mad. It's arrogant. There's no plea. There's no defense. We can't justify a sinful life or any single act of sin against such a glorious God. Not only that, Can anybody deny but that you've ignored his plain and clear warnings and threatenings? Isn't it all in the pleadings? Hasn't God put it all on paper for you? Hasn't he told the race from the beginning his way? Obey me, I'll bless you. Disobey me, I'll curse you. The two possibilities. It's everywhere in this book. The pleadings have got it all. God has told us beforehand. He's made it quite plain and clear that if a man dies unrepentant, he goes to torment and to hell. So God is justified. He's told us. He's warned us. Oh, but there's something much stronger. Any man who ever finds himself in hell will be there in spite of God's love and mercy and grace and compassion. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It isn't only that if we've ignored the law and have spurned the voice divine and have refused to listen to the mighty argument. God in the person of his son came down to plead, to put the case. Not only that, to deliver us out of it. It's the whole meaning of the, of the incarnation. It's the whole meaning of his death upon the cross. all he suffered and endured his death the shedding of his blood the breaking of his body it's the whole explanation and if you're in hell if you find yourself in hell I say it'll be in spite of that that God offered you pardon for nothing a new life to become a partaker of the divine nature and to make you an heir of heaven and eternal bliss it's in spite of that you'll find yourself in hell In other words I say this and I say it with reverence there is nothing more that even God could do when God gave his only begotten son even to the death of the cross for our sins that we might be forgiven and reconciled and made anew. Even God can't do any more. God's given himself in his son. Very well my friend. The question I want to ask you as I close is this. Have you read the pleadings? Are you familiar with the case against you? God's put it to you. You have no excuse. They're all here. He's taken it step by step. He's reasoned, he's argued it out. Have you read the pleadings? Tell me secondly. Having read the pleadings, Aren't you ready to accept his terms? Aren't you ready to accept his offer? Aren't you prepared to take your stand with David and say, you're right, there's nothing to be said. You're absolutely just. I deserve nothing. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Are you ready to become like the publican in the temple, slighting his breast and saying, God. Be propitiated towards me, a sinner. There's nothing to be said. There's no argument. There's no plea. Having read the pleadings, have you seen that you haven't got a case? Have you read them? Have you considered them? Have you submitted Have you surrendered to God? My dear friend, I'm pressing you, I'm holding you at this point for this reason, that if you haven't, you know, and if you die in that condition, do you know what your experience will be? It'll be this. It'll be that of a man depicted by our Lord himself. He spoke a parable about a great king making a feast. He sent out the peop- to, to the people. They didn't come. He sent his servant and said, tell the people to come in. And they all came in. And they were provided with wedding garments to put on. The people who would come in from the midst of their work, from the lanes and the hedges and the fields. And they're provided with garments by the generosity of the king. Eventually the king comes forward. And there in the company there is one man who hadn't a wedding garment on. And we are told that the king said unto him, Friend, how comest, thou camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? Friend, how came okay, Esther in hither? Not having a wedding garment?
1: And the question
0: goes on being repeated why? Well, here's the reply. And he was speechless. Speechless. Why was he speechless? Oh, because there was nothing to be said. There was no reply. There was no excuse. He was just a fool. He was just arrogant. He was just proud. He was just too big to take the wedding. He was speechless. And when God looks upon any man in the final judgment who has not accepted his offer of free salvation in Jesus Christ, he will just say, I gave you the pleadings. What have you got to say? And there'll be nothing to say. Every sinner will be speechless. God had warned. God had condemned. God had put it all in writing. Above all, he'd sent his son. There was the way out. The offer. All for nothing. What is there to say? There is nothing to say. Oh, beloved friends. Consider the pleadings of God. And submit to him in repentance and receive the glorious offer of free salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord.